Welcome to 20 for 20, the bite-sized educational podcast from Tom at Cannaboomers and Kurt Robbins, author of more than 500 articles about the science of hemp and cannabis. We're giving 20 cannabis topics 20 minutes each to help you get smarter about terpenes, cannabinoids, cultivars, and much, much more. And our show starts now. Hey, it's Tom at Cannaboomers. We're back with episode four already of 2420. Today, uh, Kurt and I are going to be talking, well, Kurt, mostly, not me, I'll be listening. <laughs> we're, we're going to talk about the history of cannabinoid and terpene research. Hey, Kurt, how are you doing? Good. How are you, Tom? Very good. I'm excited about this episode. There's a lot of great information. Right around the time when Prohibition was really gathering steam, there was still some science going on, and we were learning about this plant. Yes, there was, especially uh, in the United States. The history of this, I, you know, not everybody is a fan of history, but I think it really lends perspective. Raphael Mashulam, who we've referred to before, the Israeli researcher who discovered THC in 1964, he was speaking uh, recently and pointed out how when he began research in the 1960s, he realized that there was no research on cannabis slash hemp, and but yet other plant-based drugs or chemicals in the human body had been studied for a long time. For example, morphine was 150 years before his research in the 1960s. Uh, cocaine and the coca leaf was and how it interacts with the body and can potentially uh, be used with as medicine was uh, researched 100 years before. Meshulam did his uh, research. And he was amazed by this. He's like, what's going on? And that really is what motivated him to do all of his research and give us all this great science. Well, it's amazing that we're so far down the road on some of these other substances and uh, kind of scratching the surface. But I know there was stuff that was happening even back in the 1930s, right? Uh, around our understanding of the plant. Absolutely. Where it really starts, the very first uh, cannabinoid, cannabinol, uh, CBN, more commonly known, was discovered by British chemist Robert Kahn in the late 1930s. Just a couple years later, American chemist Roger Adams, who was working at Harvard, he was quite uh, in the, the realm of science, he was kind of a celebrity at the time, and uh, he isolated CBN and CBD. While Meshulam in Israel is typically credited with quote-unquote discovering THC in 1964. It was actually Roger Adams in 1940 who discovered it, but it's a little deeper than that. He was not able, he did not have the, the advanced enough equipment, and maybe it just wasn't part of his project, right, to isolate THC from the plant. He synthesized it, and he synthesized it from other molecules like uh, CBN and CBD. So it was Meshulam in 1964 that first was able to both synthesize and isolate the molecule. And, you know, some scientists would say that deserves the label of a true discovery. You know, he, he did it all. And he had more modern equipment for the nerds in the listening audience. He was using a nuclear magnetic resonance spectrometer, and that allowed him to get his work done. So he could take a closer look than, than you could in the 30s. Exactly. It's equipment that Roger Adams and Robert Kahn simply did not have. And, uh, but you'll notice we have this big gap from 1940 to 1964 and that it transitioned out of the United States to Israel and other countries. And that's because of the federal prohibition in 1937 that pervades until today. So 
the endocannabinoid system was eventually discovered later on, right? Yeah, like very recently in medical science research uh, in the 1990s. And in fact, it was 1992, there were two scientists working on Mashulam's team at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, an American pharmacologist, William Devane, and a Czech chemist, Lumir Hanu, I hope I pronounced that correctly, Anyway, they're working on Mishulam's team, and they isolated the first endocannabinoid. Now, remember, we were, when we're talking about CBN and CBD and THC, those are phytocannabinoids from the plant. What these guys pulled off was finding an endocannabinoid and then saying, okay, what's the mechanism behind this? And thus, the endocannabinoid system became apparent to these scientists. Wow. So for 40, 50, almost 60 years... We knew of cannabinoids, but we didn't know that we made them endogenously. Exactly. We knew they came from these plants, but, you know, did we produce our own? We, we just, we did not see the big picture. So really, it's why so many people uh, respect and admire Mishulam and, and his team over the decades, because they brought all of that to light through multiple discoveries. In fact, in 1964, when he isolated and synthesized THC, he did the same thing with cannabigerol, CBG. And CBG is an up and coming molecule, so to speak, that's getting a lot of attention from companies and scientists. I mean, that really changes your understanding of the plant and the compounds. Are, you know, are there other, there are cannabinoids in other plants, I guess, right? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. Right now, no, the answer is, is no with our current science and understanding. But I was just reading a study uh, the other day that said, you know, there is some evidence that cannabinoid-like molecules are produced by plants other than cannabis and hemp, but they're, they're expected to be very different. And this brings up something interesting in the molecular life cycle, you know, the, the metabolism and life cycle of these molecules guess how cannabinoids start out? Terpenes. They start terpenes. out as terpenes. Terpenes okay. yield. So yeah, this, you know, it, it's chemistry. It's complicated, right? To fully understand it, we got to have a PhD. <laughs> and there are terpenes in like oranges and lemons and pepper and all. There's Absolutely. Absolutely. But we're so far, we only see cannabinoids, the way we define them, you know, chemically and their chemical structure and the way they interact with the endocannabinoid system, we're only finding those in cannabis. So yes, what in 1992, we discover the uh, first endocannabinoid and it was called anandamide. Well, that's what this team named it. And that's the Sanskrit word for joy or bliss. So it's kind of a nice, you know, backstory. Then the same team in 1995 discovered the second endocannabinoid, they called it 2-AG. And now that they had multiple endocannabinoids, multiple phytocannabinoids, and we're learning a lot about the endocannabinoid system, that's when the science really started to get some traction, in my opinion. And it was not until when we get into more some of the nuances of the ECS, like the entourage effect or endocannabinoid deficiency, the entourage effect was not even proposed. It was not even coined until 1998. So this is all very, you know, in the big scope of things, very recent science. Right. Mashulam and his gang are, are discovering all these different cannabinoids and terpenes, and they realize that there's a synergy happening. Exactly. And, uh, you know, we'll talk more about entourage effect and endocannabinoid deficiency theory 
and basically both of both of these are theory not basically they're both theories they're not proven through clinical research and we we have a lot of evidence pointing toward the reality of these mechanisms but we do have to put all this in perspective and i know your previous guest mara gordon is very good at doing that i love her reality check you know that she brings to it we need to know a lot more before we can escalate these uh, promote these beyond theories there's a lot of different cannabinoids right i mean there's there's a hundred some yeah, right now we've got track of about 113. But what's funny is if you check out some of the research studies and get into some of the hard science, sometimes uh, you'll see references to 60 or 80 cannabinoids. And it's a reputable study. And well, how can we have such a disparity? Well, it turns out there's a set of core cannabinoids like THC, CBD, CBG, CBN, CBC, et cetera, et cetera. And it's quite, a, it's quite a long list, but they have what are called analogs. And analogs, it's kind of like if you have a cousin that looks pretty much like you, but it's not you, you know? They got a different brain and a different body and, and a different personality. So that's what analog molecules are. It's, it's like a different flavor of the same ice cream, if you will. For example, CBD has six total analogs. And let's talk a second about the categories of those analogs those kind of sibling molecules, if you will. There are varins, varin, B-A-R-I-N. And varin versions are interesting because they sometimes demonstrate very different efficacy than the, what's called the main or active molecule like THC. So THC is known to stimulate appetite. THCV will actually decrease appetite and sometimes almost eliminate it. It could be a wonderful formulation for people with type 2 diabetes or obesity and, and other issues like that. You know, the difference between THC and THCV is very important. Then there's another category called acidic precursors. Acidic precursors are really important because they create the active molecule. There's always a, an acidic precursor behind the active molecule in the life cycle. So for THC, it's THCA, CBD, CBDA, CBG, CBGA. It's really, really very simple. Let's go just a little deeper with CBG though, because it's acidic precursor, CBGA is, I've called it the mother of cannabinoids in articles before, because it produces not THC and CBD in the active molecules, it's like a meta or macro acidic precursor that creates all of the other acidic precursors. And then THCA obviously creates THC. So we see this chain, this life cycle mechanism of how these uh, molecules transmogrify under the right conditions, right? If they get decarboxylated. So we've got heat, we've got oxygen, we've got even just physical jostling. These are volatile, delicate molecules. Right, and they're, they're reacting in sort of a cascade fashion, it sounds like. Cascade's a perfect word for it. Uh, domino effect uh, works too, but uh, you know, it's not as simple as just saying, THC is good for your arthritis. Well, yeah, there's, there's some, definitely some truth there, but uh, which analog of THC? And in what ratio to other cannabinoids and terpenes? Because we know about this thing called the entourage effect. And again, it's a theory, but uh, there's a lot of solid research out there saying that we're getting enhanced efficacy by not only having the right cannabinoids and terpenes in the formulation, but the ratios are also real important. Is it a 20 to one CBD to THC or a one to one or a five to one? There's a difference. 
right? You could synthesize all this in the lab and, and brew up different recipes for, I guess we call them cultivars or rather than strains, but different cultivars are going to have different recipes. Even bud by bud, they're going to have variances, right? That's correct. Uh, I've talked to master gardeners over the years who tell me that the lower branches of a mature female cannabis plant uh, have a different cannabinoid profile and terpene profile than the upper branches. So, which nobody likes to hear because that really screws up batch testing. You know, no state doing batch testing requirements wants to hear that. Right. In a way, it's very simple, but there's a lot of complexity to it too with when you talk about precursors and varins and there's a lot happening here. There, there is. I mean, and like I joke, to really completely understand all of it, we'd have to be both PhD chemists uh, or other intelligent researchers, and we would have to spend years and years researching this. Now, the good news is we continually hear there's a dearth of research. We need more research. Yes, we do need more research to do things like take these theories you know, to the next level. But the reality is there are thousands of research studies right now. So instead of, sometimes I want to tell certain activists or thought leaders, you know, instead of continuing saying we need more research, that, that is an important message, let's dig into the existing research. So, hey, that's what you and I are doing, right? Sure. Well, I mean, meta studies are always helpful and nuclear magnetic resonance spectrometers came out <laughs> in the 60s. So I, I'm sure there's better equipment now and universities and, and private labs are able to do research at a level that we couldn't have dreamt of earlier. Absolutely. And it's become more affordable, too. Now, these machines are not inexpensive, but uh, the standard for years has been gas chromatography. And the new technology is liquid chromatography. I was actually at a cultivation and processing facility in San Diego, and they had multiple PhD scientists on staff, including one of their founders, so really just passionate, intelligent people. It's such a joy to talk to them and interview them. And they had just hours before my visit uh, received a liquid chromatography machine. And they were like kids at Christmas. They couldn't wait to unbox it. What will that allow them to do? It's what research labs use when they create a certificate of analysis. It's, it's, a, it's an analysis machine that will show them the terpene profile and the cannabinoid profile and the percentages you know, is it 17% THC or is it 27% THC? That's important information to know. And that expensive machine that takes a trained tech to operate uh, can yield all of that information. One conjecture about why we haven't had research in the past is because there was no payoff. People could grow this in their backyard or whatever, and a drug company was not going to fund research for a, right. a, a common yeah. weed. Does that argument hold water? I mean, there's so much to be gained by understanding the different chemical reactions that are happening here. Right. And like we talked about in the last episode, when we talk, discussed research, uh, you know, a human trial, double-blind, placebo-controlled, top-shelf, gold-standard human trial is multiple millions of dollars. So I think now that we are forming an industry and money is flowing through it and it's got its own economy, we're going to start seeing, and we are seeing, a lot more research. You know, we can sit around and whine about uh, Schedule One and federal prohibition here in the U.S. and the fact that that doesn't allow federal dollars and they're typically tied to research and everything. Or private companies are starting to do the research, and if they can't do it in the U.S., that's fine. There's Canada, there's the U.K., there's uh, Israel, there's a lot of other places where, where they can do this. Pretty exciting. I mean, there's, there's much to learn, and uh, definitely we're, we're advancing our knowledge as we go. 
it's an industry now. It might be a pocketed mess and, you know, a very new industry, but it is a legal industry all the same. And I, it's not going to happen overnight, but, you know, dollars are going to begin to flow into lots of areas of that economy and research, I believe, is one. Some of what you're talking about today, where you are isolating the different terpenes and cannabinoids, but then there's the flip side of it is how, what happens inside your body? Yeah, it's not just what do we have there, but different types of patients, in theory, need different cannabinoid profiles and terpene profiles, and back to those ratios, not just, hey, I need THC and CBD, but what, what ratio do I need? And some of that is predicated not just on your receptor density and your endocannabinoid system and all your individual subjective physiology, but sometimes by lifestyle too, if I'm not an airline pilot. But if I was, you know, I probably would not have uh, smoked a joint at 11 a.m. like I did today. Or he could take THCV if he's trying to kill his appetite. But he might not want to do that because we found that THCV actually does provide psychoactivity just like THC. But it's it's kind of a weird, we talked about biphasic responses last time, and it seems that you have to get quite a bit of it. But when you do, the psychoactive effect can be even more pronounced than THC. So wow. we have a lot to learn because we don't necessarily want to give the daycare director or the pilot or the truck driver, you know, get them all spun out and then people die and there's lawsuits and it's kind of <laughs> ugly. <laughs> no. Yeah, we want to avoid that. The point being, there's just so much kind of versatility to this plant and so many applications, and we're just beginning to scratch the surface with some of these discoveries. Absolutely. If, if it's going to play such an important role in treatment of serious diseases like cancer, arthritis, Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's is just one of the saddest diseases there is. And uh, we have proven through clinical studies efficacy of various components of this plant. But you see, as, as we get more educated on it, it no longer, the idea is trite that will say the plant is good or the plant is bad. There's too many components within it to make blanket statements like that are no longer logical. It's so big and it's a big sprawling story to, to tell and to uncover. And uh, piece by piece, we're, we're building it. I appreciate your, your expertise in this. I think, uh, I think we've covered most of what we had today. Is there anything else we need to add? Uh, well, in the next episode, we're going to have a lot of fun because there's a lot of confusion between names we give different types of cannabis, right? Most of us, we say Jack Hare or Durban Poison. That's a strain. But the word strain is more appropriate for a flu virus or a bacterial infection. <laughs> so we're going to talk about what's the difference between strain genotype, genome, cultivar, phenotype, chemotype, chemovars. What the heck is all this stuff? We're going to break it all down and everybody will have a full, comfortable understanding by the end of it. That's important. I mean, words define our reality, so let's get them right. Exactly. All right, Kurt, thank you for wrapping this up. A lot of great stuff in this episode and we look forward to episode five coming up soon. Thanks, Tom. You've been listening to 2420, a special edition podcast series from Cannaboomers and Kurt Robbins. Want to learn more and help grow the cannabis movement? Spread the word and follow us on your favorite podcast platform or at cannaboomers.com.